My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's my pleasure and privilege to bring you a message from 1 Corinthians 15 this Easter morning, this Resurrection Day morning. So you can be turning there. We'll be in verses 50 to 58. We are celebrating something uh, that is so incredible and so full of hope and wonder that it really, if we get it, it should leave us with a fresh perspective that fills us, that fills us with love and joy and peace. And, and it should fill us in such a way that by God's grace, we should go from, from this place this morning feeling as if we would burst with those things. This is how amazing the truth of Easter morning is. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life uh, that is so full of joy uh, that you felt something like that? Have you had a moment? Maybe a birth of a child or birth of a grandchild. Maybe your wedding day. Maybe your wedding day that's coming soon. Maybe your high school graduation, college graduation, maybe a new job, whatever it might be. Have you had one of those moments that have just been so full of joy that it just fills you up and flows out of you? I would submit to you that as good as those experiences have been and, and really are, they, they faint. They are a faint whisper of joy, really, compared to the joy of Christ's resurrection, what it should do in our lives. The, the reality, the truth behind His resurrection should fill us with an experience of joy and wonder that just makes everything else pale in comparison. As good as those times in life may be. And so my prayer this morning is as we look at God's Word in 1 Corinthians 15 that He would speak to us in a way where our eyes would be open to just how amazing this truth is. And how amazing the reality of Easter morning, what we celebrate today, is for us. So we're going to read, but I want to pray. And I want to pray and ask God to pour out His Spirit here amongst us and in us and through the proclamation of His Word that by His grace we would leave this place feeling like we just experienced something wonderful as we revisited what is ours in Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we ask You this morning to open up our eyes. And we ask You, Lord, to, to fill us with the same wonder and joy and hope that the disciples would have experienced after they understood that day what had happened. Lord, we are so blessed to live in a culture and be in churches that teach this truth over and over again, but Lord, uh, it leaves us kind of used to it. And we miss just how amazing it is. And so I pray, would You open up our eyes. Holy Spirit, would You give power to grasp these truths. And would You change us and would You fill us with joy as we consider this amazing, bright future we have in Christ. This amazing victory that is ours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can follow along with me. Verses 50-58. to Paul is writing to his friends in the church in Corinth. And he says that, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God's Word from 1 Corinthians 15.50-58. I believe this passage and the truth it teaches should dramatically change our lives in every way for every day. The core truth in this passage is this, that the resurrection is your ultimate victory. The resurrection is your ultimate victory, so live like it's true. That's really what this paragraph, I believe, teaches. We have the brightest future imaginable in the resurrected Christ. The resurrection is your ultimate victory. So live like it's true. So that's what I want to dig into as we go through this. Those three points talk about the resurrection, its victory, and living like it's true. A little background before we, we dig further into it though, just to, so you understand what's going on. This is chapter 15 of the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. This is a, a church in Corinth that had been formed through the proclamation of the good news of Christ. Paul had gone there and, and had gone there with fear and trepidation and simply pro- proclaimed Christ crucified, that the promised king that God brought had uh, given his life, had died on the cross, had offered up his righteous life, had died, had failed. He had been crucified. In that time, in that culture, they understood that as the worst, uh, the worst punishment you could receive for usually the worst crime. So it was utter failure. But he proclaimed the truth that through this utter failure, there was ultimate victory. That Christ had paid for our sins. And in that payment, we were free and forgiven. Then he had uh, been raised from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He proclaimed that truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And people came to faith in Christ and found their lives transformed. They believed and experienced the power of God. And a church was formed. Lives were transformed. Things were good in many ways, but there were some issues that were tempting them and sidetracking them. Sinful ideas, worldly ideas. They were getting sidetracked. And, and so this letter addresses them, bringing them back to the Gospel. Actually, chapter 15, he, he goes after the Gospel. Uh, he reminds them of the Gospel. And, and one of the ideas that was a problem behind this particular chapter is that they were most likely influenced by Greek philosophy. A Greek mindset. and A Greek mindset that said basically the, the ideal state is the spiritual state. The ideal state is to be a spirit free of the world. And the world is at best just a mere reflection of the spiritual state, the ideal state. So to, be, to reach kind of heaven and and their view was to be free of this world and free of the body. Matter of fact, there were more extreme versions of that that said actually your body and this world were inherently evil in every way. So heaven is about getting rid of the, the body and, and being a spirit, kind of floating on a cloud, playing a harp sort of idea. And Paul 
brings correction to that in this chapter. He brings correction to that idea that, that somehow that, that is what heaven is about. That's the ultimate goal. And he brings them back to the Gospel. And inherent in the Gospel is Christ's resurrection from the dead. And, and central to the truth of the Gospel is His, his resurrection. The resurrection of His body. The resurrection of Christ's body and soul together is part and, and essential to His victory. And so in this chapter, he goes through all the aspects of the resurrection. First, he, he in the first section just basically says here's the gospel and the resurrection is part of the gospel the fact of the resurrection the reality of the resurrection the historicity of the resurrection that's all part of the gospel part of the good news and he goes on to say that that um, the resurrection is something that makes everything else in christianity make sense that it's a basic part of god's design for creation it's something tied to the very essence of being fully and truly human. Those are his arguments throughout the chapter. You'll see if you read it. He does that. And then there's this last paragraph that we read, which is the capstone to the whole chapter. And that's what we're going to dig into. We're just going to look at this truth that the resurrection is your ultimate victory, so live like it's true. So verses 50 to 53, and actually, if you can. Keep those up. That would be great. 50-53, to 53, he says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. That's how he starts out this section talking about the resurrection. And he's referring to the kingdom of God. He's referring to this reality of the kingdom of God. The reign of God. The, the place where God will fully and finally reign. And he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So this final reign, which is, is speaks of heaven, but not just heaven how they would have understood it and perhaps as we understood it, but heaven and earth coming together in this final and full reign of God. That this kingdom of God uh, will not have people like us in it. In other words, they will not have people who have bodies like our bodies in it. There will not be people with broken Decaying bodies, falling, fallen bodies. There will be no corruption, no sin, no decay, no death. But a place, this kingdom of God will be a place full of God's glory. Full of His glory. Shining in, all, in and through all things. There will be no shadows of darkness or evil. It will be a perfect, glorious place. And so these present bodies, which are fallen, which get sick, which bring with it this crazy inherent desire to, to turn away from God and, and sin, this insanity of turning away from our good and gracious Creator, th these bodies will be transformed. So flesh and blood as we know it cannot inherit the Kingdom of God. The, the perishable will not inherit the imperishable. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this truth? And, uh, that, the, that this is what he's saying, the kingdom of God means all these things, that, the, that the, it can't inherit a corrupted body. How do we know that? Well, the storyline of the Bible backs it up. The whole storyline of the Bible, the trajectory of the Bible starts from God making Adam and Eve, putting them in the garden, and calling them to obedience, calling them to a promise of fellowship with Him. And then what happens is they fall into sin. They decide to go on their own and rebel against God. They fail. They, they, they fail to judge the serpent by the Word of God and they decide that they can do it on their own and they fall into sin and it introduces a brokenness into creation and into mankind. And so they are expelled from the garden. And then the, basically the whole storyline is about God chasing after mankind throughout history. The storyline of the Bible is not 
is not how you know, we chase after God. God chases after us in the storyline. And He chases after us to redeem us, to, to bring us back, and to restore and complete what He started in the Garden of Eden. And ultimately, we see pursuit and failure, pursuit and failure, pursuit and failure, and then finally God Himself comes as a man to live the life that we were supposed to live, that we failed to live. So that in Him and through faith in Him, we can be forgiven and have success and be included in God's final plans for the Kingdom of God to, to restore and fulfill all that He intended. So that's the trajectory of the whole Bible. The, the Christian truth about history is not that it's cyclical. It's a line going somewhere. And that line heads straight to the Kingdom of God. That's where it's headed. That's where it's going. To the Kingdom of God where God will restore all things and fulfill all things. But even more important than the storyline of the Bible and really central to the storyline, we know these truths because of Christ. The resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ is the most convincing evidence for the nature of the final Kingdom of God. Christ Himself. The resurrected Christ. In the previous paragraph, Paul had talked at length actually about the difference between the first Adam and what he calls the second Adam. The first Adam is, is Adam. Adam and Eve. And this first Adam failed. This first Adam failed to obey, failed to eat of the tree of eternal life, failed to, to attain to what God wanted for mankind. And all the descendants of Adam, all of humanity, that's you and me, that's all of us, have inherited that fallenness. And we are part of the family of the, of the human race descended from our father, Adam. The first Adam. But then he talks about the second Adam, Christ Himself. This second Adam, this second man, this perfect man, the God-man, Jesus. He came and He overcame sin and death. He believed and obeyed. He judged the devil by the Word of God. When He was tempted, He said, not My will be done, but Your will be done. Not what You say, Satan, but what My Father says. That's the truth, and I'm going to stake my life on it, even if it costs me being crucified on the cross. Even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. I will believe and obey. And He succeeded in that obedience. And that obedience was the atonement for our sins. The payment for our sins. So He overcame where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded and accomplished Redemption for us, for all who put their faith in Him. And then, rose again from the dead. Rose again victorious over sin and death with a resurrected body. So the Easter story, Easter morning, we see a picture of perfected humanity. We see a picture of what the Kingdom of God will look like. It looks like the resurrected Jesus. A new body. Overcoming sin and death. Reigning victorious. That's a picture of the Kingdom of God. That's a picture of God's reign and rule. That's a picture of the perfection of God in Christ. And it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Everything hinges on the truth of the resurrection. That's what Paul's saying in this chapter. If you get rid of the resurrection, it all falls apart. But when it's founded on the truth of the resurrection, we understand the whole storyline. Because Jesus lives, we live in Him and we can experience and will experience resurrection. He is the prototype of the new humanity that will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth. So not only is Christ 
living in a renewed body, a glorious body, a resurrected body. But there will be resurrected a renewed creation as well. Heaven and earth will be entirely renewed. Jesus' resurrected body is a picture of that renewal and what's coming. And, and, And it's just worthwhile to think a little bit about His resurrected body. It's a glorious body. At times, they didn't even recognize Him. They didn't know who He was. He looked different somehow. He could transport from one place to the other. He just appears somewhere. So it's a different body than we know. It's a glorious body. And then He ascends to heaven. So He's in heaven with that resurrected body. So it's a, it's a body that can dwell in the, in the presence of God in heaven and on earth. It's a picture of our future. And all these things are ours in Christ. And Paul in this paragraph is, is saying, that, guys, that's what your destiny in Christ is. New bodies, new creation. You're going to have a new body just like Christ's resurrected body. And there'll be a moment when it all comes true. There'll be a moment when it happens. And, and those who are alive at that moment will actually go from an earthly fallen body to a resurrected body in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the, at the sound of the trumpet. Those who have already fallen asleep and gone to be with the Lord in spirit and are awaiting their new bodies, they will receive new bodies as well at that instant. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will sound and it will happen. As surely as Christ rose from the grave, there will be a day when He returns, the trumpet sounds, and you will awaken and arise with a new body to live with Him forever in the Kingdom of God. That's the truth of Easter morning. That's what we celebrate. This is ours in Christ. Researchers have been working on a cure for cancer for a long time. And we know, probably every one of us firsthand, the ravages of cancer. Either experiencing it, watching loved ones struggle with it, losing loved ones. We've lost church members to cancer. Family members. One of the hallmarks of cancer uh, is that it overwhelms the body's natural immune defenses. It overwhelms them so that it can take over your body, basically. It can take over the, fe- the energies of your body to direct those towards reproducing itself, its own twisted form of your body. And it's quite possible in our lifetime that we will see a vaccine to prevent some or even all types of cancers. And I pray for that. I believe we should pray for such things. Can you imagine what that day would be like when they come up with a vaccine? Vaccine to, to you can take the vaccine and it prevents you from getting cancer. Just imagine, I mean, the, the chaos, the people will be going to their health clinics and doctors lining up to get the vaccine. It'll be probably this chaos full of joy. Just the day. Wow, this is amazing. Now there's a cure for this disease. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they make a new holiday, a new national holiday called Cancer Free Day, as we celebrate the cure of the ravages of cancer. Again, we should pray for that, and if you are in that field, work towards it. But brothers and sisters, there already is a cure for cancer. There's a permanent and final cure for cancer. And for its more insidious father, sin. There is a cure. And the cure is Jesus Christ. 
He died for our sins. He rose again. Victorious over cancer. Victorious over sin and death. Victorious over all these things. There is a cure. And there is a new and final life. Even if there were a cure for cancer, and may there be in our lifetime, you eventually will die. Your body will die. You will die of something else, if not cancer. We can't put our hopes merely in those things. But there is a cure that lasts forever. It's Jesus Christ. It's through His death and resurrection. And He's living proof of the cure. And it's easy to receive the cure. It's easier than going to the health clinic, actually. You don't have to wait in line. It takes a moment. It takes a moment just to say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for doing life my way. I receive what You've done for me. I receive Your blood shed on the cross. Your death for me. Your body and blood given for me. I receive it. I, I believe it. And I thank You for Your resurrection. Now lead me to live with You as King. Just a simple prayer like that. It takes a moment and all these things are Yours. It's through the gift of faith. This is the wonder of the resurrection. This is the wonder of Christ rising from the dead. It's victory over sin and death for all of us. And if you are a believer in Christ, this is all Yours. You have a cure for cancer. You have an eternity in front of you. You have life in the Kingdom of God. It is all Yours. It is all Yours because Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has risen. It's your ultimate victory. And so Paul is talking about that in this, in this paragraph, and it's no wonder that he talks about it and then goes into four verses of just celebration, really, of the truth. Starting in verse 54, he goes on and, and he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's a promise that was made in Isaiah. 700 years or so before Paul wrote this. And then the second part of the saying is out of Hosea. And this is a wonderful promise made back in time by God who intended to fulfill it. That death would be swallowed up in victory. Death would be swallowed up forever. Death's evil reign and its poisonous sting of sin and sin's struggle with God's law all would be gone forever and ever upon Christ's return, as surely as Christ has risen from the grave. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful good news. The good news of Easter morning. The good news for you. This is your good news. This is your future if you are in Christ. It's interesting to note uh, how he says this in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the verb there? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say thanks be to God who will give us the victory, right? It's not future. Now the fullness of the victory is future. We know to, to be finally and fully accomplished is it's going to happen when Christ returns. At that moment in the twinkling of an eye, boom! We'll know it all. And it'll be glorious. So there is a future aspect to it. But that's not how he speaks here. It's present. For Greek and grammar people, 
present participle, basically. The one who is giving. It's a present though. It's present. Thanks be to God to the one who gives us now the victory in Jesus Christ. Why do I highlight that? Is this just about grammar? No. This word is here by God's design. We know that every word in the Bible is the very Word of God. He chose the words, the particulars. And so God chose that this would be a present tense for our sake and for your sake. For you to know that this full and final victory, this renewed body, this renewed creation, the fullness of the Kingdom of God, a renewed world in heaven without cancer, without sin, without sorrow, without shadow, but full of God's glory and goodness in and through all things forever. This victory guaranteed by the actual historical, bodily, physical, and eternal resurrection of Christ. This victory is yours now. That's why it says it that way. And by the way, your faith doesn't have to be great for this to be yours. You don't have to have really big faith. You don't have to be mighty woman or man of God in faith. Jesus actually says that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Mustard seeds are really tiny, almost where you can't see them. If you have faith as big as a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. Now, I haven't seen any mountains moving around lately, so I think at least my faith is microscopic. You can't see it. It's that small. But it's not the size of your faith. Certainly, we want big faith. We want big faith. That's great. But faith doesn't work that way. Faith is like a key. And if you wanted to get in a, this building, you'd, you don't necessarily need a big, ornate, wonderful key. You know, Look at my key. It's one of those, you know, I've got jewels on it. It's a big key. I put it in the door. It really works well. You could have a pathetic little key, worn out, half broken. As long as it goes in the lock and can turn it and open the door, you get in. That's what faith is like. Faith is just a simple receiving of what Christ has done. And it doesn't have to be big. It just has to be there. It can be the tiniest little thing that's barely discernible. As long as it's there, it opens the door. It connects you to Christ. And this victory is yours. It is so important to not define your life by the size of your faith. How strongly you believe. How perfect you are in your obedience. Yes, God loves your obedience and calls us to it. But it's not how obedient you are. It's simple faith in Him. Turning from sin. I don't want to sin. I don't want to live this way. I want to follow You, Jesus. That simple orientation, as imperfect and as struggling as it might be at times. That is, a, that is the simple key to Christ. And in Him, all that He has done is Yours. All this promise is Yours. And the power to grow your faith and the power to live in obedience is not by looking merely at the, how great your obedience is. It's at looking at what you have in Christ. It's at looking at His victory and realizing this is all yours. You have all this in Christ. You have forgiveness. You have new life. You, you have the Holy Spirit in you. So why live that way? Why go back to sin? The power is in Christ. The focus should be on Him. And this passage is in Scripture so that you would see the victory you have in Christ. And in that would find all that you need. 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1974, after almost 30 years, a Japanese soldier, Hiro Unoda, finally surrendered to the American allies after World War II. Now we all know that Japan officially surrendered on August 14, 1945, but no one was able to convince Lieutenant Onoda. So for almost 30 years, he led a guerrilla war against the people of the Philippine island of Lubang, burning rice fields, ambushing patrols, and it wasn't until his former commanding officer, now a bookseller in Japan, ordered him to surrender that he came out of the jungle. Here's a picture of Lieutenant Onoda. And if you look, everyone else is smiling and thinks it's funny, but not Lieutenant Onoda. He's pretty serious as he surrenders. I think some of us are like an American or allied version of Lieutenant Onoda. Our side has won. The victory was declared, the victory was accomplished, but we're still in the jungle fighting, not knowing that it's been accomplished. Not knowing that Christ has conquered sin and death and has risen from the dead. And through faith, we can belong to Him and come out of the jungle into the light and truly live. We have victory in Christ. And that's what we're celebrating today. The victory we have in Christ. So Paul concludes with his exhortation in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Basically saying, guys, in light of this, in light of this victory that you have, in light of Christ rising from the dead and victorious over sin and death, in light of the future that you have in Christ, that's guaranteed by the resurrection, live like it's true. Live like it's true. Live like the resurrection is true. And this victory is yours. That's what he says in this concluding sentence. So do you live like you have complete and final victory in Christ? Do you live like you have a destiny of eternal life and a new body where all the things that you've done in this life for the Lord are blessed and rewarded and there's joy in those things that last forever? Do you live like it's true? For some of us, we don't. We live discouraged. We define our lives more by sin and death and the devil than the victory of Christ. We live as if sin and death and the devil will reign forever without remembering and living in the victory of Christ and His reign through His victory. We are like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Just always looking for the cloud and the silver lining. Now there, there can be uh, physiological or even circumstantial re- reasons for that. That's true. But at some point we must choose, even with the temptations of circumstances, and if our body is leading us to depression, even with those temptations, we must choose to define our reality and sense of well-being not by anything else but the sure and guaranteed and complete victory of Jesus Christ that is ours. And choose to live in that and come out of the jungle and see the light of day. And we as a church are committed to walking with you in that as well. To help you live in the victory that is yours in Christ. For some of us, we don't live in this because we're seeking to find in this present life a heaven. 
We're trying to eke out of this broken world a heaven. And so we go from one thing to the next. Trying to find victory in life. None of the created things can ever give us life. Only God Himself, Christ crucified and risen. And so we go from one thing to the next. Sometimes it comes in acceptable forms. Things like workaholism. Over-involvement in media or sports or hobbies or overeating. Those are more or less accepted ways that we can seek to find life. To make a heaven out of the earth. Other times it comes in destructive forms, right? Sexual immorality, substance abuse, toxic relationships. But on all these things, we fail to see the victory that is ours in Christ. He's overcome sin and death. We are forgiven for these things. They don't need to dominate our lives. They don't need to define us. We don't need to live under the the label addict. But in Christ. Living under the label forgiven. Living under the label beloved. Living under the label a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God awaiting the full and final victory. And so we are called in these truths to instead of giving ourselves to to false versions of heaven, giving ourselves to the Lord and investing our lives in such a way that they're building the kingdom. They're bringing the good news. They're making the victory known. We're demonstrating through our lives the impact of God in our lives and this victory and how we live. And all that we do in that way is investing in our future because we're promised Reward in that final kingdom. Those that we influence, that they would be there. Even the good things that we do, no matter how mundane they may seem, done in the name of the Lord, are blessed and rewarded by the Lord. So we're to live in light of this victory. We're to live like it's true. So Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The banker come up as I pray. Lord, we thank You, Lord, for the victory that we have. We thank You for Your resurrection. We thank You that You've overcome sin and death and, and through simple faith in You, all these things are ours. Your victory is our victory. And there will be a day very soon when we receive the full and final version of the victory. New bodies, a new creation. No more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow. But with You forever, glad for everything we did in life to invest in that ultimate and final reality. And I pray, Lord, for each one here, would You call us to live like this is true. Any that are here not yet believing, grant them grace to see and to trust You, find their life in You, and all those that have put their faith in You. Strengthen them now. In the glorious truth of Your resurrection we pray. Amen.